But as you've been hearing in the news, the fiscal update released earlier today showing a surplus of $5.7 billion in B.C. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is B.C.'s Minister of Finance, Selena Robinson. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. A lot of people are using the word stunning to talk about this number, the surplus of more than $5 billion. I know you've talked about it coming from higher personal and corporate to income tax numbers. Can you talk a little bit more of where this number came from? Well, consistent with other jurisdictions, our second quarterly report confirms that, you know, we've had a fast economic recovery and that's led to these stronger than expected revenues um, here in British Columbia, but frankly, right across the nation we're not uh, we're not unique in, the, in this in this particular instance and what we've seen is um, um, income tax revenues uh, personal income tax uh, revenues as well as corporate income tax revenues are, are much higher than than was anticipated it's a big jump though when we look at the number from 706 million the anticipated 706 million all the way up to 5.7 billion I mean that is a huge huge jump. Yeah, well, and the way the way that we forecast uh, the, these sorts of revenues is based on um, the CRA, when they provide the provinces and territories point-in-time data for personal and corporate income tax revenues. And so information for the 2021 tax year only starts to become available after tax returns are filed um, in the spring, right, April 30th, and then, you know, and then they trickle in through the summer of 2022, and then final assessments actually aren't even completed yet. So, each, uh, with each quarter, we get better and better data that allows us to um, anticipate uh, these revenues. And so the increased revenue data for personal and corporate income taxes in this second quarter just reflects the updates that we've been getting from CRA. And like I've said, I, you know, I've, I've, the finance ministers I met with earlier this week, um, they're all seeing the same, the same results, very similar results to, to us in terms of these increases in, in personal income tax revenue and corporate income tax, income tax revenue. Uh, so when someone hears that number, uh, the $5.7 billion, and then also hears it linked to personal income tax, uh, some might say, well, hold on a second. Doesn't that mean we're being taxed too much? But it sounds like what you're saying is it's kind of catching up and it's the economy coming back and the numbers kind of catching up to, to where we are today, not that we're paying too much in taxes exactly exactly and it's really about what we anticipated based on what we were seeing historically um, and so remember you know we weren't sure how the economy was going to rebound after covid after a shutdown uh, we have we, you know when we built this budget war in ukraine supply chain challenges uh, uh, covid shutdowns in china which are continuing now we've been following what's happening there globally, um, what impact that's going to have on the economy. So we're still in somewhat of an uncertain time. We, now we're seeing global inflation, uh, rising interest rates. And so there's still a lot of, of, some, you know, of that uncertainty. But what, 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 what we're seeing with this um, surplus is that we, you know, the investments that we've been making as a government have really paid off in keeping the economy going, keeping people working, making sure that people could continue to, um, you know, have their employment. Um, and uh, as a result, you know, pay income tax that pays for all the services, the health care, the public safety, uh, rebuilding of roads that get washed out because of a, of a, of, of flooding and a, and a atmospheric river. So all of, um, the things that we've been dealing with are be- because we've been able to keep our economy resilient. Um, and I think that's an acknowledgement of the hard work of British Columbians. Uh, 
Uh, when we look at the number as well and some of the things that you just mentioned and things people will uh, remember or think about the ICBC rates and some of the other expenditures. So am I correct in saying that so about two billion of the five point seven billion has already been accounted for as far as paying for some of those things? Well, well, yes, um, that is that is accounted for. And I again, you know, we started with I, in hearing the pressures that people were having um, and the squeeze that that families were experiencing. You know, that is why we brought in the ICBC rebates in this in the summer and then in the fall, the school affordability fund uh, to help families uh, through the school system. Um, and we a billion dollars for climate action tax credit and the BC affordability credit increases um, that were in October and now in January that the, the premier EB announced. Uh, the hydro, um, the BC Hydro bill credit uh, as well that um, the Premier announced. And we also have um, BC family benefit payments that are starting uh, additional ones to, to, again, to continue to support families. So really since June and into um, March, which is this fiscal year, um, we've been continuing to help people, people who are feeling squeezed, who, who sort of are seeing um, this in, inflationary pressures that are globally, and of course, we're feeling it here as well, around food and transportation and housing costs, and just providing additional support to take some of the pressure, some of the pressures off. Uh, we've already seen some pretty significant uh, spending announcements uh, from our new premier, from Premier EB, uh, including the $230 million for police funding, uh, for hiring more officers in those more rural, uh, remote areas. Uh, when people hear this number, though, and they look at long wait lists at Children's Hospital, they look at ambulance service that isn't uh, as robust as people would like it, they look at emergency rooms that are still shutting down in some areas, uh, they're going to wonder wh- when is that going to be addressed and if there is a 5.7 billion dollar surplus why isn't that money immediately being put into areas like that uh, what what do you say to that well we're, we're continuing to invest that, that that's that's not quite accurate we've been continuing to invest it's why you know we have uh, this um, we're revamping how we pay doctors um, that works better for doctors so that they um, can uh, properly you know pay for their staff and their costs so we have been, and there, there hasn't been a, um, um, th- this this uh, second quarter uh, report um, hasn't um, will continue to influence us in terms of continuing to make investments in healthcare, in education. Um, that's why you know we've been uh, working with the public sector um, and and developing a wage mandate that works, and that's why we're we're getting these agreements because we recognize how critical these services are. Um, and, and there's certainly more to do. No one is, is denying that at all. Um, and again, because of the economic strength that we have, what it means for us as government and what it means for us as British Columbians, that we can continue to invest in the things that matter to people, whether it is public safety, whether it is health care or education or affordability or housing. We have um, some strength here to continue to deliver uh, for British Columbians. Are you concerned at all that this, while it is a good story looking at the surplus, that it could make it more difficult when trying to negotiate or getting more money for things like health care from the federal government? Well, actually not. I mean, we need to remember that that part of what we're seeing is a is a rebound, right, that that has come from um, the the impacts of a pandemic that essentially shut things down and, and slowed things down. They didn't shut things down. We were very fortunate here in British Columbia. But also, um, 
we know that the federal government um, has a dwindling role, has had a dwindling role in, in covering healthcare costs. We have an aging population. We don't know um, how these numbers are going to hold. Uh, we, uh, you know, we are hearing from different economists that, that there's going to be an economic slowdown. We're seeing private forecasters. Um, suggests that the economy will only grow by 0.5% in 2023. Um, so again, we don't um, we don't have a great line of sight to how things are going to play out given inflation, given interest rates, given war in Ukraine, given that we still are dealing with COVID and China is continuing to sort of shut down. Um, and so these are um, there are times there are, there are headwinds. Um, in front of us that we need to be ready for. And I know British Columbians all, you know, we all deserve a healthcare system that works for us. And we are continuing to invest at the provincial level, but we do need a real partner in this with us. And that's uh, where the federal government comes in. All right. Uh, Minister Robinson, thank you so much for your time today and for chatting with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Have a great day. We started the show talking about the fiscal update earlier today. It was announced the province's operating surplus is now $5.7 billion. That's an improvement of the $5 billion over the first quarterly report and saying that this change primarily driven because of an increase in personal and corporate income tax results. And that's all according to the B.C. government as well as the finance minister. Well, we wanted to talk about this a little bit more and Rob Levy joins us now CKNW business analyst. Rob, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, always nice to be with you. Hi, Jill. Hello. What do you take from these numbers and the uh, in the updated uh, uh, surplus, the $5.7 billion figure? Well, the newly instated Premier uh, David Eby probably feels pretty good right now. I mean, he, he's walking into what looks like a, a strong economy, but it, the thing is, how does this play out over the next six to 12 months? And I think that's the question that everybody's asking right now. It's no secret, you know, province of BC following most other provinces across the country where surpluses or spending is coming in at a much better picture than what we previously thought. Uh, but is there enough caution built in for a bit of an economic downturn into the new year? And I think that's sort of the, the number one question in terms of economic uncertainty looking forward. But it's no secret through the pandemic. The Fed stepped up and did a lot of the spending, took pressure off the provinces. And then we've been in this inflationary environment, which has been a long, large contribution, as you said, to those income tax receipts. Uh, so it's meant for the province of BC a much bigger surplus than anyone was anticipating. Uh, and the finance minister touched on that as well, saying we don't know what it's going to look like. So really, in the next few months, in the next year, we can look at what's happening around the world as well. Uh, but how do you think that shows that we are prepared, or the province is prepared for that downturn and to deal with with any anticipated downturn? that's the tricky one because what does it look like and what does it look like to the Canadian economy? And and I think particularly too, it's the provinces of British Columbia and Ontario. Uh, It's interesting now because we've seen sort of the numbers over the past couple of years and especially the run up through the pandemic and how much housing, as an example, was a contributor, not only to the Canadian economy, but also the BC provincial economy. And and the biggest factor here, the elephant in the room is how high interest rates have gotten. So what happens if we have a bit of a housing slowdown and how does that impact the BC economy? So same with uh, when the feds came out with their economic update and they had that net, I think $30 billion sort of fiscal gain, so to speak, from 
uh, higher revenues than what they had previously forecasted and they spent about half of it, it you might just want to exercise a little caution in terms of spending those gains right now because if the revenues dry up in the new year which some economists are sort of warning about uh that's where you know you get yourself in a little bit of a more trickier fiscal situation so should we be concerned that even with this figure that was announced earlier today about two billion of it has already been accounted for and is already uh, is already being spent yeah, I, I appreciate when the finance minister said and, and referenced caution, because I, I think that's the that's the sort of key theme right here. And no one really knows. Even the, it was it was noteworthy because Stephen Polos, the former Bank of Canada governor, sort of made headlines this week. And he was talking at a, a business conference at, at Western's Ivy School of Business, sort of warning the transition mechanism from higher interest rates. We've seen such a significant run up in interest rates, and they're probably going to move higher again in December. And and everyone's banking on the flat, on the on the fact that inflation's moderated here, and the Bank of Canada and the U.S. Fed will have to stop raising interest rates in their battle with inflation. And, and I think it's kind of a hope strategy right now. We're beginning to see the evidence that good prices are turning down. But what happens if they have to continue to raise interest rates a little higher than people are forecasting right now in the new year? And, and that could put a serious dent in the economy. And it it was it was former Bank of Canada Governor Polos's remarks that people are sort of underappreciating the impact that higher interest rates will have. So that's something where I think it really is a wait and see. We've seen one of the biggest sort of declines here in the housing market going back the past 30 years. And how does that recover? There's a there's a lot of questions out there that I think we're going to get answers to soon into the new year. But it, it does sort of prompt a higher level of uncertainty. How concerned are you or how closely are you looking at that that possibility of interest rates going up even higher? I, I think that that is sort of the the paramount concern. They, that's sort of first and foremost right now. I, I'm in the camp that we're we're going to see sort of the end of higher interest rate policy. That I, I I think that's sort of the mainstream view right now and consensus, and that we're starting to see the signs that some of the goods prices are peaking. Uh, you know, grocery prices, which have run up significantly, the pace at which they're now moving higher has slowed the last couple months. I, I heard a quote on Bloomberg the, today that it's not the Grinch who's coming this Christmas; it's inflation, and it, you know, because it's taking money out of people's pockets and how much they can spend. Uh, Royal Bank uh, just came out with an estimate that for the average Canadian household, higher interest rates and higher inflation is going to cost the average household about $3,000 in expenditure next year. So you, you think maybe that's the, the, the better part or a part of a vacation or more than part of a vacation, but it, it's going to be a significant cutback for a lot of households. So it, it's no doubt that we're going to see a hit to the economy next year. It's just how big is that hit? And, and yeah, it's predicated on the fact that we're nearing the top in, in terms of interest rate policy. But the big question, you know, could it go a little further? All right. Rob Levy, always great to, to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us and for bringing us this update today. Thank, thanks, Jill. Nice to be with you. Thanks for being with us on this Friday afternoon. Well, the BC Civil Liberties Association is responding to a ruling that comes from the Supreme Court of Canada. And this is a ruling that has to do with limits of undercover police investigations when it comes to online spaces. So joining us to talk more about the ruling and reaction is Gerald Chan, counsel for the BC Civil Liberties Association. Gerald, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thanks so much for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about the ruling? And this was a decision that was released yesterday. What exactly did this ruling discuss or what did it find? Sure. So this ruling dealt with a police investigation uh, originating out of the York region in Ontario. Uh, And it was an investigation named Project Raphael, which was targeted at the offense of child luring on the Internet uh, and or people communicating for the purposes of obtaining sexual services from underage children. And what the police did in this case was they posted ads that uh, uh, were aimed at attracting those who might be interested in uh, uh, purchasing sexual services from underage children, although the police could not advertise under 18 because of the rules of the website. So instead, they tried to use other types of coded language to uh, attract uh, uh, prospective buyers of such sexual services. And when people responded to the ad, the police would then engage them in a text communication to see if they actually were uh, interested in meeting up with someone who was under 18, in some cases under 16, uh, and if the person showed up to the hotel room that they would then uh, provide them the address to in the text exchange, that's when the police would arrest them. Uh, And so what came out of that police investigation was the legal issue of whether by conducting the investigation in that way, the police were engaging in unlawful entrapment. And unlawful entrapment is where the police provide an opportunity to people to commit crimes um, without having enough of an evidentiary reason to target a particular place to begin with. And so our law tells the police that they can't uh, target a broad physical or virtual space and simply give everybody the opportunity to commit a crime. That's what we call random virtue testing, and it's not allowed uh, uh, under our charter. But the police can do that if they're targeting a sufficiently narrow area where they have pretty good reason to believe that there is this crime going on. And so the Supreme Court uh, dealt with the legality of what the police did in this case, and they found it to be lawful. And so something like they couldn't just go and put these ads all over the Internet and hope that somebody who is a predator would see these ads and answer them and that they would be able to arrest them that way. But if there was somebody who maybe had shown predatory, uh, had been a predator in the past or had had been doing things online that were illegal, if they targeted that person, it was okay. Um, A a slightly different if they targeted a, a space. A virtual space where there had reason, where there was reason to believe that there was this criminal activity going on, then that would be fine. So they can't go to Facebook at large, for example, right, um, uh, or Instagram at large, or any you know, pick your website, right, where there's perfectly legitimate activities going on. What they did here was go to a section of Backpages.com, which is a website that was, you know, had people using it for perfectly legitimate reasons, but was also somewhat notorious uh, for having this type of criminal activity going on. And they further narrowed the scope of who would be affected by this investigation by tailoring their ads so as to attract uh, people who might, you know, uh, be, be, they have reason to believe would be interested in this type of underage uh, sexual activity. Now, it wasn't a perfectly tailored investigation. There's, the evidence was there still were lots of people who responded to the ad. And once the police actually texted them and said, well, I'm, you know, I'm an underage uh, girl, uh, many of those people discontinued the text conversations. So it still was attracting some people who had no interest in this type of criminal activity, but the pool was was narrower because of how the police tailored their investigation. 
And that's what really came out of the court's decision. The court said, look, the police can do this, but you have to be very careful uh, to to circumscribe your investigation because we don't want lots of innocent people being affected by this. And because the Internet is unique in terms of the privacy and expressive freedom interests that are at play. A lot of people expect anonymity on the Internet. Uh, that's where they uh, express themselves in all manner of ways. Uh, and so we want to be very careful that the police investigations are no broader than necessary when they're affecting our privacy and freedom of expression rights. Right. And, and I get that. That makes makes a lot of sense. But how would innocent people be caught up in this if, like you said, in the scenarios, and I think I remember Vancouver police talking about a similar type thing they did, and it was people that showed up at a hotel room. Uh, but how would innocent people right. be, be captured in this if somebody, like you said, answers the ad, uh, the, the undercover officer said, poses as an underage person, then they stop and, oh, no, I'm not interested in that, then, then they're not, then that seems like that would be done. But if somebody still continues and engages, even though they know this is an underage child do you not do you not does is, is that not criminal activity that could then be investigated no it, it would be i think what the court's concern is though their their concern is at the point where the police are offering people an opportunity to commit a crime right so the innocent people would be affected before that text exchange where the officer says well actually i'm an, i'm 16 years old um it would be at the point of responding to the ad that says 18 because the rules of the website says you have to say 18 you can't go below that and so what the court's concerned about is just the the point at which the police are offering potentially innocent people an opportunity to commit crime and the reason their concern is not because uh, those innocent people are going to end up being charged and arrested they won't if they discontinue the conversation they're concerned more broadly because if people who are using the internet or using uh, websites where there may be criminal activity going on, there may be perfectly uh, legal activity going on. If people who are using those websites know that the police are potentially always there acting undercover, offering opportunities to commit crime, you will have self-censorship. You will have people not expressing themselves as freely, even about perfectly legal things, as they might otherwise doing if they think the state is always listening or reading what they're writing. So that's the concern that the court was grappling with in this case. All right. So are you pleased with the ruling or does this offer better guidance than when it comes to what's okay and what's not okay? It does offer better guidance. And, I, and, and from the BC Civil Liberties Association's perspective, we are pleased with many aspects of the ruling. We're pleased with the recognition that there's both uh, privacy and expressive freedoms at play here and that those are interconnected. They're not uh, separate uh, charter or constitutional interests from one another because often we express ourselves most freely when we uh, have privacy. Um, we're pleased with the fact that the court recognized that the Internet is a unique space, uh, both from the perspective of people being able to facilitate crimes, but also from the perspective of privacy and expressive freedom. You, know, you think it, it, there's no easy physical world analogy to what happens on the Internet. And one of the analogies that both parties were trying to cite to in this case was, well, that the police go to a, a neighborhood and offer to sell drugs to everybody. Uh, which the cases have dealt with in the past. You can't really analogize to that because in the physical world, there are resourcing constraints. You may only have one officer who can go there and they can only intrude on so many people's privacy at a given point in time. On the internet, a single officer can start, you know, 15, 20, 30 uh, undercover investigations in parallel on multiple websites. And uh, the private, the scale of the privacy and expressive freedom intrusion is much broader. And so the court's judgment recognizes all of that 
while still giving law enforcement the flexibility to investigate these types of crimes. And so I think from that perspective, it struck a reasonable balance. And are there concerns, though, and I would imagine the argument being that if we're talking about people on the Internet that are preying on underage people that are involved in criminal activity, that it's kind of uh, the the um, the means justifies the end and that that's not the case, especially when dealing with this kind of platform? Well, I think I think the means justifies the end uh, approach is it is something to be very careful about because even though this case came up in the context of uh, a sort of child exploitation investigation, the laws and the tests and the principles are much broader than that, right? This case, entrapment doesn't just come up in this context. It comes up in other uh, types of police investigations. And so it's not going to be uh, investigating um, uh, sexual predators against children in every case. It could be a very different case the next time around. And that's what the BC Civil Liberties Association uh, is urging the court to be cautious about. And one of the main points we argued in which the court uh, agreed with, for example, is that the police have to be especially careful when they're targeting virtual spaces that are used by vulnerable groups such as racial, religious, or sexual minorities. Uh, you would not want a situation where the police can too easily or readily intrude into other virtual spaces on the internet to conduct other types of investigations having nothing to do with internet child exploitation um, uh, and targeting spaces that are frequented by vulnerable groups uh, because you don't want those groups feeling like they have to self-censor. And, and just one other point and something that you had mentioned as well in that uh, that it is dangerous or that we don't want to encourage police to be passing value judgments, which I think people would agree with. But what, what are we talking about there when when it's a, a value judgment as opposed to talking about it's not a passing a value judgment if somebody is caught or I guess maybe not caught or convicted of doing something that's illegal. And especially in this case, you know, going after underage people on the Internet. No, that, that's quite correct. What we had argued and what the court did not fully agree with is a bit different. Uh, what we had said was at the point of determining whether the police have narrowed the scope of their investigation enough, like whether they're targeting a sufficiently narrow space where they have good reason to believe there's criminal activity going on, it should not be relevant to that question of whether it's narrow enough that the communications going on in that space are not ones that the courts or that police think have a lot of societal value. Let's say sexual, perfectly legal, sexualized communications versus political expression. Um, you know, the, the fact that it's not political expression or religious expression should not mean that the police can more readily invade these spaces because there are other types of expression uh, that are very important to people in Canadian society. All right. So it's a very interesting ruling. Gerald, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. On the last Friday of every month, we take a look at some great books and book recommendations. And I always like this one in November as well, because while it's not billed as the holiday list, there are always some great ideas if you were looking to get a book, perhaps for somebody in your life, on your shopping list. So let's check in now with Marianne Yazedjian, manager at Book Warehouse. Marianne, good afternoon to you. 
Thank you. Good afternoon to you. Well, such a, this is great weather, I think, for kind of curling up with a book as well. So let's start with the list that is on fiction. And we're starting with a really interesting one. I believe this is a story that involves a former statue brought to life. Yes, this is Galatea by Madeline Miller. This one is recommended by my colleague Caitlin at our Broadway store. Um, People would be familiar with Madeline Miller's name. She's the author of Circe and the Song of Achilles, two books that are staff favorites in all of our stores. So this new book reimagines the myth of Galatea and Pygmalion, and it's a feminist retelling. So in the myth, Pygmalion sculpted Galatea out of marble, and then she was blessed by a goddess to become alive. After marrying her, Pygmalion expects her to serve and please him, but she has her own desires and yearns for independence. So she's rewriting this this myth, which is fantastic. Caitlin says she read this little book in, in, you know, it didn't take a lot of time to read, but she keeps going back to it, and it just really packs a punch. Perfect stocking stuffer or a small gift. All right. That one sounds very interesting. Let's continue down the list. And this is also an author I think people will recognize this author, the writer of Shrines of Gaiety. Yes. So Shrines of Gaiety is Kate Atkinson's new book. She's another one of our staff favorites. Uh, You you might remember her books Life After Life, Transcription, and the Jackson Brody Mystery Series. She's also one of my favorites. This book is recommended by my colleague Holly at our Ladner store. So we're in London of the Roaring Twenties, 1926 precisely. The country's recovering from the Great War, and London has become the centre for nightlife and celebration. So we meet our main character, Nellie Coker, who is ruthless, ambitious, and just wants to advance her six children. But of course, success breeds enemies. Holly says this book is just amazing. There's elements of mystery, deception, skullduggery, and all set against a great historical background. That is an I'm ins- so excited to read this book. Yeah, it's such an interesting time. And, and I think that does kind of play into so many books, too, whether you like reading books that take place currently or in the past. But if it's in the past, this is what, what a great backdrop to have for any story, really. Exactly. And Kate Atkinson's historical fiction is just fantastic. She, she makes you feel like you were in that time and place. All right, let's move on. And Michael Connolly has a book out that we're looking at. He does. Michael Connolly's new book is called Desert Star. This one's recommended by the owner, Kathy. This features LAP detectives Ballard and Bosch. So we have Renee Ballard returning to the police force after leaving a year earlier due to misogyny and demoralization that she experienced. And now she's teaming up with our our main detective, Harry Bosch, to work on a case that has been haunting him for years, which is the murder of an entire family that has never been solved. Uh, Kathy says this is such a satisfying mystery, classic Connolly, and it may be the last that we see of Harry Bosch. Ooh, fans of Harry Bosch are not going to like that. No, no, very true, but... uh, you might come back. <laughs> All right. That one is Desert Star. And one other one before we get to the nonfiction books today. And I love Barbara Kingsolver. And uh, ever since I read the Poisonwood Bible, absolutely loved her writing. And she has a new book out. Mm-hmm. She does. So Barbara Kingsolver's new book is called Demon Copperhead. I'm reading this right now. And I also loved I love everything by Barbara Kingsolver. She's one of the authors that when I hear she's got a new book coming out, I just I cannot wait to to grab it and read it. So yeah, like you said, she's a author of the Poisonwood Bible, which a lot of people read quite a few years ago. This new one is uh, set in the mountains of southern Appalachia. It's the story of a boy born to a teenage single mother in a single wide trailer. 
And with this novel, she's paralleling David Copperfield by Charles Dickens about a boy experiencing institutional poverty and its damages to children. But this novel is contemporary, and Demon is faced with the challenges of foster care, child labor, addiction, abuse. Um, But the character's voice is just so unique, caustically funny, so sharp, and so endearing. If you like Barbara Kingsolver, absolutely pick this one up. All right, that one is called Demon Copperhead. And let's move on to nonfiction. And we've got a couple of authors here who I think our listeners will be very familiar with. Uh, first one, Eve Lazarus has been on this show several times and Cold Case BC. Yes, so this is Eve Lazarus's new book, Cold Case BC, um, which remember her previous books, Cold Case Vancouver, Murder by Milkshake. Eve Lazarus has pretty much become a local true crime expert, and her focus on cold cases stems from her desire to really see these cases solved. She does a ton of research. She interviews law enforcement, forensic investigators, the family and friends of the victims to try to get as full a picture as possible. So the this book is just fascinating, and a couple of the highlights are that it includes an update to the Babes in the Woods case, And one of the most fascinating cases that I think in this whole book is of the Jack family, which was a family of four who left Prince George to work in a logging camp in 1989 and were never seen again. So we actually have, uh, we have Eve in a couple of our stores coming up uh, in our Semiamu store on December 3rd and our Loudner store on December 10th doing signings. So pop onto our website, you can see the times. And if you want a signed book as a Christmas gift, this is perfect. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, just uh, it's so interesting and in her style of writing. If anybody uh, has not read her books before and with the, the local stories, it's uh, such a great, you're right, such a great gift to give to somebody as well. And mm-hmm. one other nonfiction and also somebody who our listeners will be familiar with, Christine Sinclair. Yes. So Christine Sinclair has written a book, Playing the Long Game. She's an Olympic gold medalist, the top international goal scorer of all time for soccer, and just one of Canada's greatest athletes ever. She was born and raised in Burnaby, so she's a a local person. Uh, She does play for the Portland Thorns now. Um, She's typically been quite a private person, and this is the first time she's really shared her wisdom of over two two decades of her experience. She shares her significant moments in her career and life, good and bad. It's really about the value of determination, team spirit. It's an inspiring book for any young athlete or anyone. A very honest and personal story. And Christine Sinclair is actually going to be in Vancouver on December 5th doing an event with the Vancouver Writers Fest. I understand the tickets are going fast. So if you you want to get a signed copy of this one for Christmas, December 5th, Vancouver Writers Fest event, pop onto their website and you can see the details there. Oh, interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that as well because she is, she's done so much great work for the MS Society of Canada, but Mm -hmm. you're right, Christine Sinclair, she's very private and there's nothing wrong with that. So when I actually saw she had written a memoir, I thought it was really interesting that she took the time and that she put all of that out there because she does have so much to share, but, but is a very private person. Exactly, but she's just so inspiring that I'm I'm just so glad that people get to read this book. All right. All of these, I'm guessing people can go onto the Book Warehouse website, find them there or order them there and learn more about them? Yes, all of these books are in stock at all of our stores, so you can go into any of our stores, pick this up, ask us for more recommendations. We love recommending books for, for you or for gifts. All right, sounds great. Marianne, as usual, thank you so much for doing this, and we'll talk to you again soon. Great, thank you so much.